HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Corgi Spirits, Jersey City's first and only distillery, and by Bon Bon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, back to chat about all things wines and spirits. When I'm not hosting In the Drink, come find me at Fausto. would love to see you guys there. Uh, this week, we have a repeat guest, a return guest, one of our friends of the show, Ryan Mills Knapp, back here in the studio with us. Um, since our last episode, just over four years ago, Ryan has left Colicchio and Sons and an illustrious career as a sommelier in some of the best restaurants in New York and has started a company called R Square Selections, which, where he is a partner. Um, this time uh, he's in the studio to talk about this really unique corner of the wine industry. Uh, we source a lot of the wines for Fausto from R Squared and most of the uh, best restaurants in New York City, I would say, restaurants that have great wine lists, utilize Ryan and, uh, to get some pretty special wine. So I'm excited to have you back in the studio to talk about what you're doing, a little update I'm Great excited to be, to be I'm excited to be here every four years we should keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping for my good for my sake that you're you're still doing R squared in, in four years in yeah me too so. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I plan on it um, so tell us uh, walk us through the the last few years how did you sure. uh, what happened you, 
when you started this this new company, how that came to be? Well, what happened was, as I think for people who are employed as a sommelier or a wine director, for a lot of those people, you have a shelf life. You know, I heard an interview with I think Sabado Sagaria at some point in time that he sort of likened it to being a gymnast or being an athlete. Like when you're about 35, you're done. You know, and so from my perspective, that's kind of I was for a while looking for a way to do something different. Uh, I'd worked in restaurants since I was 15, so 20 years of it was about uh, you know my fill of it. So. We kind of spent some time, you know, my wife and I talking about what we wanted to be or what we wanted our schedules to be like. And I, uh, the thing that I've always enjoyed is being a wine director is sourcing wine and finding stuff. And I sort of kind of started to think about a different way to do that for different people. And so we kind of decided to, instead of source wine for people, which was what I always did in restaurants, I decided to maybe start to do that for wine directors. And that's kind of how we started to get the company's idea off the ground. And your partner in the company was a regular in your restaurants, right? Yeah, he was just a wine collector, a guy who worked in finance that I had known and become friends with through working in restaurants. And did you approach him with the idea? Did he approach you? How did that work? I did. He was sick of working on Wall Street. Um, we were at his house, uh, my wife and I and his wife and he, and we were basically having dinner and he was bitching about his job and I was bitching about my job. And his wife basically was like, why don't you guys just do something together? And we were like... Like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we should. And so I kind of pitched him this idea that I'd been rolling around in my head, and he was like, it's not a bad idea. Maybe we should work on doing that. And that's kind of how, that was the genesis of it. And that was in 2015 in the fall, so we're three years about into it. All right, and can you walk us through uh, how your business works? What do you do? Sure. Um, what we do primarily is source um, old wines for restaurants and wine shops um, all over the country. And we do that in a number of ways from all over the place. Uh, we, a lot of it comes from Europe. Um, we have sources. One of the th- good things about being the sommelier is you used to get paid, you know, people would fly you to Europe to go visit vineyards. And in that process, you know, I met a lot of people that worked at wineries. I met a lot of sommeliers that worked in um, and distributors that worked in Europe. And I developed sort of a network of people over there that I started to tap when I started this company. So we have probably, I don't know, 20 different sources in Europe that we get um, old wine from. So some of it's direct from the distributors, some of it's direct from wineries, some of it's from restaurants and wine shops, um, and some of it's from sources, you know, that we've kind of developed over the last three or four years. And so that's kind of what we do. And then we, you know, import it to the United States um, through an import partner that we have, and then sell it to wine shops and restaurants. And how does the sourcing process work? I mean, are they mostly sending you lists saying, hey, this is some stuff that we have? Do you feel like, do you have to go over to Europe to to maybe cultivate new sources or maintain these relationships? How much of it is sort of farming what's coming in and, and hunting to try to get new stuff? It's a little bit of both. When I started the company, I went to Europe with one of my sommeliers and was like, hey, do you want to come and meet all these people with me? He's a Swedish guy who's since moved back to Sweden as a sommelier in Stockholm. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's go. So we went to seven countries in 11 days. Uh, I rented a car and I actually landed in Paris the morning after the Bataclan attacks. 
and it was just you know I, we have like a little apartment that we stay in in Paris, which is right around the corner from the Vatican, and we just like landed and then just like rented a car and basically like ran, you know, and like went to as many different places as we could in a couple of days to just like say hi to these people who I'd been emailing with to check out the facilities to taste a bunch of wine. Um, we were in Luxembourg and Belgium and Germany and Austria and like all over the place. And so since then, you know, I go maybe about once a year. I think I'm going to go to Paris uh, in like, like two or three months again, which will be my trip this year. But I was in Scandinavia earlier this year um, to basically just kind of maintain the relationships, check in with people, see if I can develop some new stuff. Um, you know, doing business in Europe is a little bit less money driven and a little bit more personality driven than it is in the United States. Um, so, you know, they kind of don't like Americans just showing up with money saying like, give me all your great wine, you know? So it's useful for me to go over there and, you know, have dinner with people and drink wine with them and build that relationship. Yeah. So, you know, so that's kind of how we go about it. Are there certain wines that you're particularly looking for? Are you open to, I imagine that you're looking for certain producers or vintages, but are you also open to finding new wines that, that you maybe weren't familiar with before? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we some of our distribution contacts in Europe will send us stuff. They'll be like, hey, check this wine out. Um, we don't have enough to, or like sort of, you know, we don't have enough to send it through formal distribution in the U.S. where, you know, if they were going to try to sell it through Skernick. Skernick would need 20 or 30 or 40 cases of the wine, but they'd only have eight. So they'll be like, here, we're going to send this to you. This wine's delicious. Um, So we do a little bit of that. Um, We don't necessarily have the staffing to build brands, though. So there'll be stuff that I just put onto my list that nobody's ever heard of, and I just need to, you know, and it takes us a while to sell it, and I need to bring bottles out and open it for, for people, but... Because we're not, you know, like a, a big company with a bunch of sales reps, we have a we try to sell wine that people have heard of, with then just older vintages. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Have you had any like, particularly funny or crazy stories when you're sort of on a trip trying to source wine? Um, yeah, I mean, it's always kind of an interesting, like going into people's houses. We went to this guy. We buy some wine from these people in Belgium that are uh, like one of the big distributors of wine in Belgium. Um, and I went to visit them. Belgium's a funny place for wine because the French-speaking part of it doesn't drink any wine. And the Flemish-speaking part drinks all the wine, but they mostly just drink Bordeaux. And so they have all this other wine that we like go crazy about that's just sitting around. You know, I bought like 75 cases of 10 to 15-year-old Grio for like 10-year-old bottle from them just because they couldn't sell it to the Belgians. But there's like no old Bordeaux because Belgians buy it all. It's like kind of a weird. So we were visiting with these people and we said, hey, is there anybody like you guys? And they said, well, yeah, there's this other person, but he's weird. But I don't know whether you should go and visit him. And we're like, hey, listen, we got free time. We'll go. They're like, okay, just so you know, he's weird. And I'm like, okay. And they were like, okay. We called him. It's okay for you to go and visit him, but just so you know, he's weird. And we're like, okay, we got it. We got it. We got it. Then they're like, uh, it's best if we come with you. And we're like, okay, great. And so we went and visited this guy um, who was like the fourth generation of wine importer in Belgium. It was like outside of Ghent. And he was the uh, he's the importer for Vega Sicilia. He's the importer for DRC. Uh, he's the importer for Mayo Camazé and all of these people in Belgium. And he's this really big stereotypical Belgian guy. He's fat. He's got white hair. He's old. He like is jolly. And we pull up, and he's like just really friendly. And we didn't really understand what these people were talking about. Why it was really weird. He's like, yeah, come and sit with us. And we walk into his warehouse, and it's like the warehouse is his house. And there's just Bordeaux forever. 
like probably 150,000 cases of Bordeaux and it's just stacked on stacked on stacked. And his, it's just, he lives there with his sister and his sister is kind of autistic and in her like late seventies. And the way that they, um, the way that they categorize the wines, they just had a big, huge handwritten book and his sister who was like slightly autistic knew where everything was, every bottle. So we sat down in their kitchen with us and the other Belgian distributors and my sommelier friend and, these people and just like tasted through we're like you know they're like do you want to taste any wine we're like yeah sure great and they're like just go through the book and pick out what you want to taste and you know they had a bunch of bordeaux you know but then they had tons of bordeaux that we never heard of that was like 20 30 40 years old and so we're like let's just taste bordeaux that we've never heard of so we sat and just tasted 50 bottles of bordeaux from the 70s and 80s that we'd never heard of we were there for four hours and his sister we'd be like okay we'll take the chateau grand saint james you know 66 and his sister would look at the book and disappear for two minutes and come back with a wine out of like 150 50,000 cases and we were there for hours and hours and hours and hours drinking with this guy and it was like a really remarkable experience and so that was like you know and then afterwards I never could get in touch with him again they wouldn't pick up the phone he wouldn't he like never respond to the emails it's just yeah. like this weird experience that I had this one time and then I've been trying to get back in touch with him and ever like, since I want to buy some wine and yeah because it was it's all amazing. like there was all this stuff from the sixties and seventies that was like ten yeah. euro or fifteen euro, and I'm like, oh, all these restaurants would pour seventy five Bordeaux by the glass if they could give for twenty five bucks, you know? And, yeah, and I got like a hundred cases of it, so I've been desperately trying to get in touch with him since. So I'm gonna try to go and visit him again, and see if I can like. When I left, I was like, how do you get in touch with these guys? And they're like, well, we're like, well, we check our email sometimes. I'm like, oh, wow, wow, that's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. That's an incredible story. Okay, so uh, you have all these great sources. Is is there anything interesting that people should know about the actual importing side, actually bringing it from the source to to the state side, or is that just kind of all like legal? Yeah, I mean it's pretty stuff? it's pretty boilerplate. You know, there's a lot of people that do it. Um, Tim Allen Tenney is the one who clears most wine into the into New York. He does it for like forty or fifty distributors. He does it for retail shops. I mean, he does it for all kinds of different people. Um, we don't use him, but like it's, but there's a lot of people that have a, a pretty, um, you know, robust logistics setup. Um, it's something that we're, we're sort of in conversation about doing for ourselves at some point in time, like sort of developing it. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, right now, like all the sort of wines purchased by our importer in Europe and they import it and we sort of buy it from them is kind of how we, how it works. So, um, so I mean, it's pretty straightforward. As far as importing into the United States, once it gets here, each state has a different law. You know, it's like 51 different countries' liquor laws in this country. So that part of the business is complicated. Um, you know, How many states are you selling to? Um, I think it's, we're about eight right now. Um, and so, I, I don't know, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly what expansion looks like. A majority of it's in, in New York and California right now. And are you trying to sell to states where there's the biggest market, but also the least arcane laws or, or both? Yeah, I mean, we can't sell the franchise states. Um, so, you know, there are two different ways that liquor laws work in the U.S. There's franchise states where the distributors own the brand. So it doesn't matter if I'm selling 1974 or whatever, you know, the distributor owns that brand and all vintages of it. Mm -hmm. So you can only buy that one from those people and so I can't sell one in those states um, and so there was but in other states where they're not franchise states you know we can just get set up within distribution and we can sell that way okay and talking about distributors um, how how do you imagine I imagine that 
as someone who was a sommelier and wine buyer at a lot of great restaurants, um, you probably have really fantastic relationships with a bunch of the distributors. How do they feel about maybe you getting and selling wines from some of the same producers that they have? How do you manage that relationship? Well, I mean, from our perspective, we always try not to step on people's toes. You know, I don't need to undercut Dom Perignon, you know, current vintage. There's no reason for that. It's a, you know, it's a global brand. I have no reason to compete against that. Um, you know, our idea is basically to fill in wine lists and fill in, you know, shops with the stuff that you can't find. Like I don't, you know, so, so far our relationships with distributors have been pretty harmonious. You know, uh, distributors have bought wine from me. Um, you know, so, you know, for the most part, we try not to piss anybody off, you know? So if I'm selling, you know, 1964 Odero Barolo, you know, the people that are selling Odero in the state, you know, maybe the oldest vintage they have is 08, you know? So like if they want 64, they need to either buy it at auction, you know, and then, you know, Providence can be an issue, you know? And so, you know, so for the most part, we've been trying, we tried to fit in, fill a niche that kind of didn't exist. Yeah, and uh, I imagine at some level, because a lot of the wines that you're working with uh, fall into those two categories, like older vintages that you can't you can't find unless you're getting it at auction, and auction uh, is great sometimes, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's less convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, or t- sort of super allocated wines like you know Prevost and Clougeard and all this stuff that is you know it's hard to yeah. find, and you want to have it on your list. I wonder if on some level distributors are are thankful because they can only buy so much of those wines yeah, yeah. and uh, selling them and having everyone ask about like, I want my allocation of this wine is a lot of pressure for them. So maybe that yeah. relieves some pressure for them. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that sort of realize that it is what it is, you know, like um, there are certain wineries that make a lot of wine, but don't sell any of the United States. Like Jacques Salos is an example. Salos makes a ton of wine. But he doesn't send any to the United States, so Solo Champagne is really hard to get in the United States, and it's expensive when you can. Mm-hmm. But because Solos makes a lot of wine, you can get the wines, you know. And so, you know, you can get older, you can get back vintages of Solos. He makes a lot of wine every year. And so he's not going to ever send any more wine to the United States. He's a, a kind of an iconoclastic guy who does the things the way that he wants to do them. His son is a little bit younger and a little bit more kind of laid back, and he's the one that makes the wines primarily now. But the still, there's only going to be so much wine that comes to the United States. It's good for the brand if people can get him and taste the wine because it's the best champagne in the world. But, you know, like what are you going to do if you, you know, if you want a bottle and you can't get it, you know? But if it's available, you know, someplace because of the way that, you know, the modern world works, you can get it. You know, yeah. You know. And then it's exciting as a buyer to see, like, if I go through my distributor, I, I can't get, or maybe I have like once a year, I get an allocation of six bottles or something like that. Right. But knowing that it's more available through you, it's like, it's, it's thrilling. In right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing that. When I first went to Europe, I was like, I'm begging and for years to get three bottles of Salos Rosé. And then I walk into a wine shop in Paris and there's 15 cases stacked in the corner and it's on the shop, it's on the shelf for 100 euro. You know, that's what that was the idea when we started this company. I'm like, wait a second, you know, something can be done about this. And it seems like you have a, a knack for tapping into what sommeliers like to drink as well. Um, I, I imagine that's from 
being a sommelier for many years. Yeah, and uh, For many years. I mean, I still, all of my friends are sommeliers still. Yeah. You know, once I left the restaurant industry, I didn't leave hanging out with the restaurant people. You know, so I still spend a lot of time hanging out with sommeliers. And so, and I still drink a lot of wine, less so than when I was working, ironically. But, um, you know, I still am around it a lot, you know. And my business partner, probably even more than me as a sort of a civilian, is really... Um, plugged into what people are looking for you know he's always talking to people about it um i'm as i've gotten older in the wine industry have become a little bit more kind of laid back about it and he's sort of been the opposite so it's been a good um it's been a good partnership that way it's it's nice because I, I imagine on some level he's he's just getting into the industry so he has yeah. that like enthusiasm yeah he's fired up <laughs> yeah and I'm like kind of thirty eight and jaded you know? and how does your relationship work how do how do you divide your responsibilities I'm sort of the operations guy and he's the finance guy basically so he handles you know all of the sort of back of the house and I sort of am the um, the you know the customer facing side of the company. That makes sense. Do you you have a holy grail wine? Like you're always looking, if you can buy this wine, you will always, always buy it. Um, There's a lot of that wine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, There's, you know, there's, Prevo is one of those wines. And Marie, uh, like LeDru Champagne people, because she's retired now, like those wines, I almost can't even offer them out to people because the frenzy is too much. Like, and so, I mean, there's a lot of wine. The, the demand for wine in the United States is remarkable. That's the biggest change that I've found in the, in the wine business in the last 10 years is that the demand is through the roof now. It's crazy. So it's a, it's a good time to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, for, so yeah. far so good, yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a big sea change over the last decade in the United States in the food and the wine, you know, culture. I know that there's been uh, sort of a move in Albany to maybe make it more difficult and pass some legislation. Um, can you talk about how that has uh, affected the way you look at this? Sure. And I think that I, I've like posted some stuff on social media about it. And it, I, like, it doesn't affect me immensely, but the thing that it will affect is uh, people like you who buy wine for a restaurant or people you know, who buy wine for wine shops. Um, it was, so the big liquor companies, you know, Southern and Empire, um, Charmer, you know, like that Charmer Sunbelt group are very anti-competitive. Um, they have a lot of money. Um, they're very, 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 uh, powerful and politically connected. Um, and they constantly are trying to change the rules of the game to, uh, benefit them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the last couple of years, last five years, they've been trying to change the liquor laws in New York state to make it a franchise state. Um, which means that you can't buy wine at auction means that you can't buy, you know, old vintages of wine from anybody besides the distributor. It means that, uh, the, you know, the wineries will have to sign contracts, you know, making like with the distributors to change it. So that's what it's like in Georgia and, um, you know, uh, Utah and a bunch of other states in the country. Um, and so what that is, it's really bad for wine buyers and it's very good for the big liquor companies because then, you know, they don't have any competition if they're trying to sell Opus One. And, you know, their current vintage is 2014 at Opus One, and you can buy 1994 at the same price, and you run a restaurant, and the liquor reps are kind of pushy anyway. You're going to buy 94 Opus One from somebody else at auction or from me or from whomever. 
Um, and so that's bad for the liquor companies, but that's good for you. Um, so they've been trying to change this law for a while. Fortunately, um, the New York State legislature and both the, and the governor as well are very um, conscious of the tourism aspect of New York City and New York State, the fact that people come here to eat and drink and find things they, can, they can't find anywhere else. And so they've been friendly and supportive of um, restaurants and wine shops' ability to you know, source good wines for their, you know, their establishments. All right. On that uh, note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Ryan Mills Nath, partner at R Squared Selections, right after this. This episode is presented by Corgi Spirits. Housed at Jersey City's first and only distillery, Corgi Spirits meticulously crafts small-batch, ultra-premium gins with wonderfully unique botanical blends. Their brilliant spirits are suited for drinking on their own or in making cocktails that are refined yet playful, much like the dogs after which the brand is named. Because Corgi Spirits love dogs as much as they appreciate exceptional drinks, A portion of profits from every bottle of Corgi is donated to a local dog and animal rescue organization. Learn more about their mission to craft a better breed of spirits while helping save animals by visiting corgispirits.com. This episode is also presented by Bonbon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. Bonbon is a place for friends and neighbors to come together and enjoy good food and good company. The heart of Bon Bon is filled with love for the community of Lawrence, Kansas, for the staff and suppliers that put food on the tables, for quality local ingredients, and for fun, creative dishes. Learn more at bonbonlawrence.com. I'm Souther Teague of Amoria Margo and a co-host of The Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs. I'm a very busy person. Um, and I do this because I love it. I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. And we'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. Uh, And for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. All right, we are back with Ryan Mills Knapp of R Squared Selections. He's telling us about sourcing and selling some really beautiful, very rare wines. Um... Ryan, I was trying to think back on uh, our first interaction with uh, with your new company, and how do you go about finding new buyers? Um, I imagine that you already had a, a big network, um, but are you still sort of constantly looking for buyers? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, you kind of have to go out and sell it, you know, like that's the one time where I'm kind of a sales rep, you know, but 
I've, I've talked a lot about it. Uh, to a certain extent, I'm a, like a drug dealer, you know, that, you know, I don't need to beg people to buy drugs. You know, you just show up and you're like, hey, you're a drug addict? Here, I sell drugs, you know? And they're like, oh my God, look at all these drugs, you know? And that's kind of like the metaphor that I use because a lot of the wines that we sell are wines that sommeliers want and they have a hard time finding. So I don't need to sell anybody on the fact that I have wines that they desperately want. And so that side of it, basically all I do is just go to places and be nice to people and give them my card, you know? And so I've been spending a bunch of time in Washington, D.C. Um, because we have a distribution set up down there. And Washington, D.C. is a great place for that because there's a bunch of really young, eager people. There are a bunch of people, like it's a budding food city. Um, you go down there and social media has also shown all this wine to all of these people. And they say, oh, wow, I've been seeing pictures of this wine on social media. I see that you have it. I can't get it down here, you know. So that side of it has been uh, relatively easy, you know. Oh, nice. And so how often do you find that you're visiting different markets and trying to trying to open up new often sales. you know i probably like six times a year seven times a year it sounds like a really fun part of the job you just go to a, yeah, a good like restaurant and yeah it's just like i look up. on you know whatever website and they're like okay what are the good restaurants in this city and then i'll just like go and meet the wine buyer and say hi and you know exchange information and you know that's kind of how we've done it and so yeah i mean that's the other good part of this job is that i'm not i don't have to report anywhere for work you know any day i'm just like out and around you know and um since i own the company with a partner you know i can i kind of come and go as i please you know and especially when it's in the service of growing the company my partner is like yeah man go for it you know so. Right, and you can expense these great meals. <laughs> Indeed, that's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty nice. Where it's been uh, one of the more surprising towns, or cities you've you visited, and you're like, wow, they sounds like DC might be. One yeah, of DC them. probably would be my my guess. A I place mean, not known for their good food, even the. Yeah, it was a short a, time ago. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty lousy place for a long time, you know, because it was like kind of a transient town and it's sort of like a, a barely a place, you know, it's like where people came to work when the government was in session. But there's been many, many more people now. My sister lives down there. Um, you know, it's much more vibrant of a city than it used to be. Um, and so it's been pretty interesting. You know, it's still um, kind of growing, but. You know, what's happened is as New York City and San Francisco have become too expensive to open restaurants regularly, all those people with all the talent go to the other parts of the United States and they open great restaurants, you know, and because it's much cheaper to open a restaurant in Memphis than it is in San Francisco. And so those places like Memphis and Washington, D.C. and all these places now have all these amazing restaurants because, you know, the sort of diaspora of, um, you know, the major cities is sort of rising tide has lifted all ships, you know, a little bit that way. And you're finding these, all these other places want good wine as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so all of these chefs that I used to work with mm -hmm. um, now call me all the time. Like, I have a friend that opened a restaurant in Cape Cod. I have a friend that opened a restaurant in Denver. I've got friends that are opening a restaurant in Arkansas. And, like, I was their wine guy in New York City, so they call me up and they're like, hey, Ryan, can you fly to Arkansas and help me, like, write the wine list for this restaurant? And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the laws and see if we can get some wine down to you. And these are people you worked with in restaurants in New York. Yeah. And they're like... Yeah, chefs, yeah. I'm done. I'm done with New York. I'm going to open up something cool and yeah absolutely he's like great. i'm moving to la i'm opening this thing in denver you know and so and then they go to these towns and they you know get famous you know so it's been so it's been fun you know like sort of watching it and that's the other sort of surprising part of it and it's the sad part of being in new york and san francisco you know a little bit 
is that it's it's just so it's so tough. I know it's in San hard. Francisco, uh, it's hard for people who work in restaurants because of transportation. I've I've been yeah. hearing too. It's like you can't. It's hard. It's so expensive to live in San Francisco proper, but the transportation out of San Francisco kind of closes down at like eleven o'clock. Yeah, I'm sure it's really. I mean, San Francisco has changed immensely. You know, we go, I go out, you know, twice a year probably because I also sort of work with a winery in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I go to California relatively regularly, and San Francisco is much different of a place than it used to be. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the winery in Santa Cruz Mountains? So um, it's, it's a, wine- a fun place for winery. Yeah, now. it's yeah. great. Um, it's this winery called U.S. Grant. Um, they make Pinot Noir from this vineyard that was planted originally in the 1860s. Um, um, and it's a sort of a new project that we're just getting started on. Um, one of my good friends is a guy named Michael Tarian, who used to make the wine at Hansel, and he makes a bunch of the wine uh, now, and he's the winemaker and kind of the general manager of the property. Um, and he and I have just been kind of circling around the place for a while. It used to be a, a, a vineyard called the Santa Cruz Mountain Vineyards. It was a guy named Ken Burnap who uh, moved up there in the 70s and bought the vineyard from David Bruce and made a lot of kind of famous wine there, but in very little, like, small amounts. And they, yeah, he sold This it. is, like, high altitude, right? A yeah, lot it's of, facing the Pacific. A and Pacific like, influence. Yeah, yeah, about, like, 900 feet, like, right in wow. the middle of a redwood forest. It's a really beautiful place. There's, like... You get up there, and it's right on the top of a mountain, and there's nothing around it but redwoods. Um, and there's, like, a five-acre vineyard. And the first vi- the first vintage that Michael Terrian made was 12, and he kind of experimented for a while. And we just released um, 15 in New York, and we've been kind of – there's not a lot of wine. It's only a couple hundred cases, and we've been trying to figure out what to do with it. But the wine just from that property is – I mean, it's spectacular. I think it's one of the best Pinot Noirs in California. And Michael's a spectacular winemaker, and the wines are really good. But we're, so we're trying to figure out what to do with them. We, they don't have formal distribution yet, and we're trying to build the brand, but we're doing it slowly. So, do you think you'll go with the distributor? That's well, like, I mean, it could be. I mean, it depends on how much wine we have. The other thing about that is it's really foggy and cool up there, mm-hmm. and it's um, the vintages are um, different every year you know so in a great vintage there's maybe 800 cases of wine and 15 the wine is spectacular but there was botrytis in the flowers so they lost half the vintage so there's only 300 cases of wine you know so i mean that's not a viable business you know it's just like kind of a hobby of michael Terrian and mine and the owners you know and so you know that's as a business i don't know what we're going to do with it it's okay. hard to get distribution for 20 cases of wine yes you know so right now we just sell it through usa to friends of ours so Okay. Maybe direct to consumer also? Yeah, maybe. We've, there's a wine club. We've sold a little bit of wine that way too. Um, you know, so we're trying to figure it out. It's a, you know, the, the actual making of wine and the building of a winery is, takes a lot of time, you know, many, yes. many years. And so, a lot of money. And a lot of money. I know through Winona, like, at, at minimum, it's three years, right? You always yeah. have one, one vineyard that, or one vintage that's in the vineyard, one that's in the winery and one that's in the market. So you're always working with at least three vintages at the same time. And now if you're someone who like who ages your wine for multiple years on top of that, Absolutely. It, it's just tying up a lot of capital at once. Yeah. And it's a crowded marketplace of California Pinot Noir or just, you know, the wine business in general now. And so, you know, there's a lot of competition and you have a lot of people that are sort of doing things that are similar to what you're doing. So you need to find a way to stand out, you know, especially in the what the way that people used to do that is you'd like make wine to get good scores. You release wine. Mm-hmm. But Robert Parker gives it 98 points and then everybody wants your wine. It doesn't work like that anymore. And so the, we're still trying to figure out a way to, 
you know, make it work. And you kind of need to do it the old fashioned way, which is just pound on the pavement. Yeah, but it's it's cool because that's that's true cool climate Pinot Noir, and not just yeah. a, you know the trend of people wanting to take a warm climate site and pick it a little bit earlier, which is a good thing too. Um, yeah, it I can think be. it's really, the wines are very unique from up there. Um, they they're very savory. They're very um, sort of foresty driven. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like all this like sort of bay leaf and rosemary and like uh, redwood sort of components to the wines. Uh, it's really unique, California, and I think the Santa Cruz Mountains, besides a couple of famous wineries like Ridge and Reeds and, you know, a couple of people like that, um, there's not a ton of people that make wine up there, you know. Is Arnott Roberts doing? Arnott Roberts makes a little bit of wine. Yeah. I know Pax makes some wine up there. Um, you know, so the, I mean, there's there's people that do it. Um, you know, Bonnie Dune is kind of in Santa Cruz, too, so... Mm-hmm. Um, but not a lot, not compared to, you know, any of the other major wine growing regions. So it's, you know, it's kind of an uphill climb. I don't know. You know, I, I'm doing it just because I love Michael Terrian and I like kind of want to help him out and it's a fun thing for me to do. And I go and hang out in Santa Cruz and it's great. So it must be, uh, amazing. And we, we were talking a little bit about this, uh, during the break, you guys didn't get to hear it, but, uh, when you're a buyer in a sommelier, um, People just, you know, they bring you wine and the wine ma- sort of magically appears in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but now someone who uh, is working on making some wine and has this uh, bigger business where you're, where you're sourcing wine from, uh, from Europe, uh, you must have, you must, what, you must have learned so much. What, what have you learned? Yeah. The one thing that I learned is that I shouldn't have had as big of an ego as I did when I was a wine director. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it's an important slice of the business, you know, to be a sommelier or be a wine director at a restaurant. You know, what you do is you help people build brands uh, for the general public, you know, and you help people build brands at a restaurant, but you really have no idea how the wine business works, you know. Like you said, people just show up and then there's wine, and then if you don't get the wine that you really want, you get pissed and make a big stink about it, and then they give you a couple more bottles, and that's what you do, you know. And you have no idea why you got a little bit, you think you're the most important person, you work at this restaurant that's in Manhattan, my chef is famous, you know, the the restaurateur is famous, why don't I get this wine? But it doesn't work like that, you know, so... The, it's been interesting to sort of learn about the global wine business, what it takes to build brands, how wine gets, you know, uh, allocated all over the world, what it's like, you know, when you go to Hong Kong and there's a wine buyer there who's got the same attitude that you do in New York City and it's like you're looking for the same wine, you know, and so the it's humbling a little bit that way. To, you know, you sort of step off of your island and see the ocean, you know, a little bit for what it is. So that, that's been interesting. All right. Uh, I think that's going to be it, Ryan. It's great to have you in the studio. Likewise, it's always fun to come by. You're doing great work. And uh, thanks so much for, for making the wine list at Fausto uh, that much better. <laughs> My pleasure. Everybody should go to Fausto. It's a tremendous restaurant. Oh, thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to let our listeners know that it is the annual summer fun drive. Help HRN raise $25,000 before July 31st. I'd love if all of you guys became monthly recurring members. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And uh, you can set up a monthly recurring donation and support HRN throughout the year. For just $5 a month, you can get an individual membership or $10 a month for a household membership. Help us to make sure 
uh, a bright future for the Heritage Radio Network. And thanks, all of you guys, for listening. This has been In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I also want to thank our uh, producer, Jasmine Molly, and our engineer, David Tadishore. And our music was by Rennie Lopez. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Love it, baby, sing it.